0: What's up? What's up? What's up podcast world chat building back at you another episode of this life ain't for everybody Thank you so much for helping us grow Getting this message and content out there Please continue to support the partners and sponsors that support all of our properties here We're excited about the growth of the podcast today's episode of the This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast is brought to you again by our friends, Lynchburg, Tennessee, Jack Daniels, America. Enjoy it responsibly. I don't know how many memories have been made over Jack Daniels. I don't know how many breakups have been fixed over Jack Daniels. I just know that it's there when you need it in a pinch, and it's always been there for me personally. Don't abuse it. Use it responsibly. The taste of the sour mash Tennessee whiskey out of Lynchburg, Tennessee is my absolute favorite. and We're so humbled to be part of the Jack Daniels family. They have been there for us for years, and my guest is holding up a bottle that has, it is a bottle of single barrel, good night, and it has his band's name engraved in it. I don't want to give away those three letters yet. My guest today is a real American bona fide badass, not just songwriter not just lead singer, but a rock star. He is Jeremy Popov, the founder of several bands, but lit. L-I-T is engraved on that Jack Daniels single barrel bottle. Welcome, my brother, Jeremy Popov.
1: Thank you, man. It's good to see you.
0: So I take it you're a Jack Daniels fan.
1: I am. You know, I've been, uh, I've been, I kind of used up all my drink tickets for Jack Daniels a few years ago. So I kind of switched over to uh, Tito's Vodka for the last few years. But I go back and forth, man. We, since we've been on lockdown, we've been making this, uh, some Jack Daniels sangria. That's just delicious.
0: Oh, and you're so, gonna have to text me that recipe. I'll
1: text it to you, man. It's, uh, it's good. And it's, you know, you feel a lot better about yourself when it's like two in the afternoon and you drink drinking sangria. It just seems more, <laughs> more allowed than, you know, hitting the bottle.
0: Without getting too much into your lifestyle, um, as far as the rock part of it. What is it about this quarantine Jeremy Popoff that has given given Americans because I know you're a worker, I know you're an entrepreneur, I know your mindset is driven, you're focused, you 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 got the end goal in mind you have since you started your music career and I don't even know you that well. I just know from what I've heard from guys like Jamie Johnson how how awesome of a person, how sweet of a man you are. And talking with you, I can just tell how driven you are and how successful and professional you are. What is it about this damn quarantine and this COVID-19 coronavirus that has given Americans like myself and you, your wife, your friends, the mindset that it's okay to have a Jack Daniels at two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> Isn't it weird how it just feels like we're supposed to during this?
1: I, I mean, it in a way, you know, you, if you feel like you're on vacation and you feel like it's every day is Sunday and it just feels like, uh, you know, why the hell not? I mean, I, I try not to start too early. I still try to stay on a, on a, on a somewhat of a reasonable schedule, but um, yeah, man, it just feels it's, it's uh, I definitely think that Jack Daniels and, and Tito's vodka is an essential item.
0: It is. It's just crazy to me how I I've heard it. I, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a hundred times right now during the last five weeks that it's, it's going on everywhere. My, but some, a guy that I cook with a bunch, a bunch of our Traeger content, he's like, is this right? This, this feels right. Am I, am, are people going to judge me? Because I'm like, no, man. And my, my ex-wife last night was telling me, you're not alone. I'm telling you right now, people are doing this nonstop. It just is what's going on right now. It's a weird time in our country.
1: Well, I was telling somebody the other day, I think I saw somebody post about it and I've I, been using it as my kind of my philosophy on this is sort of like airport rules, you know, this whole quarantine thing. So when you go to the <laughs> airport, it's like the bar opens at six, you got an hour till your early morning flight. You get a Bloody Mary at the bar. It's like, hey, man, I'm at the airport. You
0: know? <laughs> that, that's yeah, so that, that is that is so true that it's different rules in the airport, ain't it? That's crazy. That's a yeah. good way to think about it. I haven't seen that. But, man, I, I just I can't imagine like I, growing up, I wanted to do two things in life. I wanted to be a professional center fielder for a major league baseball team. Got to college, was told I wasn't good enough and I wanted to be a drummer in a rock band. And I don't know if it was going to be a cover band or a Friday night band at the local bar. I didn't know if it was going to be lit or guns and roses, but I, w- I took some drum lessons from a guy named the boogeyman and he's a legit drummer and a great instructor. And I think I got it. I think I can do it right. My mindset Jeremy is like, I can keep a beat. I got the, I got the idea of the, the bass drum and the foot and keeping it going. And it's very difficult. The bill Burr, the comedian, I don't know if you've met Bill. I'm sure you have through runnings around, but he loves drumming. A lot of people that, that have picked up drumming, love it. They love the ability. to. It's almost like a workout for them. The mindset of it. But I never made it. I never got to do it. And I often look at guys like you, man, what a cool lifestyle to be able to tell a story in three to four minutes in each of your songs and then entertain a crowd. And then the energy that that you have to feel up there, that that crowd is bringing into you and that you're releasing back into them. I just think the rock star mentality is is cool is it is it something that that you knew was happening when it started or give me an idea of what was going on in the late 80s the 90s the mid 90s when you really started to get into your career as a rock a rock lead singer
1: um well my brother people confuse us all the time my brother aj is the lead singer and i'm the lead guitar player and the two of us are the only two kids in our family and our dad was a radio dj growing up so um two things one he his radio shift, he he worked at LA. We were from Orange County and he was on the radio from like three in the afternoon till eight o'clock at night. Um, so um, which basically meant we were like the typical latchkey kids in the eighties. You know, we'd come home from school and there'd be no one at home, no parents at home. Our, our parents were separated. Our dad was at work. So we just, we were raised by werewolves and, and, and wild animals. And we just, all we wanted to do was ride our bikes and go to, you know, play video games at the arcade and, and just, you know, get in trouble with our, with our rock and roll friends, you know, and and that kind of forced us one, it it brought my brother and I a lot closer together because we sort of took care of each other. But, um, you know, we were, we were raised, born and raised around music and raised on the radio and all that. And, uh, one day I was at, uh, I was at the arcade playing some track and field and, uh, my bike was leaning against the window next to me and I was, you know, playing. And then I look, checking my bike and then I'm playing. And I look, my bike is gone. And so, you know, I had a diamondback, you know, BMX bike. And that was like my livelihood, you know, is what I did every single day. And, um, and it was gone. And my parents were like, Oh, sh- sorry, man. That's are shit out of luck. And so I had this, you know, piece of shit, electric guitar that was like a friend of someone's friend of whatever. And it barely played, it barely held a tune, but it was electric and that's all I gave a shit about. So, um, I, you know, my friends were riding their bikes every day. And, um, the only thing I had to do by myself in my room was just trying to figure out how to play this thing. And so, um, you know, my, we were, my dad was in top 40 radio. So we grew up around, Everything from, you know, top 40 back then meant the top 40 most popular songs in America, right? So, you know, in 1984 or 83, uh, you know, you would hear Kenny Rogers and then you would hear Boston and then you would hear, you know, The Cars and Tom Petty. And and so our our background musically was super uh, all over the place. And we didn't know the difference between country music and pop music or rock music. We just thought we like good songs, you know. And But then we started getting really into heavy metal and and I just wanted to do that. I just wanted to figure out how to play this thing and figure out how to do that. And so for the next, you know, 20 years, that's all really, um, you know, we started our band in the late 80s. We got to um, kind of experience that Sunset Strip uh, in the 80s thing because we were all in high school. And that was the only places that had clubs that would allow all ages kids in so we'd rent party buses and drag all our high school friends up to watch us suck you know at the whiskey and that's just what we did man and, you know I started writing songs mainly because I couldn't play an entire Iron Maiden song from front to back or I couldn't play an Aussie song from front to back I couldn't even fuck with the Randy Rhodes solo you know <laughs> so I was like I know I'll write my own songs that way I'll be able to play it from front to back and I'll look a lot cooler than just, you know, playing the intro riff to crazy train and stopping, you know? So that's, I have, I
0: start. have some notes here and I keep looking at them because I'm like, the very first thing that I have is SoCal because I know y'all are from orange County, but the next thing I have written down is, is sunset. And I really want, I was really hoping you went there because I often wonder again, Jeremy Popoff, of being able to, Every time I go down there, first of all, I I never go down to that part of the country. Whether I go to Irvine or whether I'm visiting Oakley or I'm seeing a game in Anaheim or Dodger Stadium or doing something in LA, hitting Huntington or watching the US Open Surf Championships or what, I love it down there. But I never go down there without going to Sunset and walking into the rainbow or walking into the whiskey. Walking in and looking at the board of pictures, looking across the street and knowing that freaking, you know, Motorhead, Lenny was right there and, and Slash has sat here and Jeremy Popoff's been in here and all the history, right? Growing up there, you're saying that in the 80s, you got to experience this firsthand. You would drive up to Sunset, which is kind of close to the Hollywood Hills, is it not?
1: Yeah, it's on the, it's right at the base of it.
0: Right at the base. So you're there and you're seeing this take place. So are is it, is it as... I, I guess I'm kind of referring to the newest movie of the Sunset Strip. Would have you seen Dirt? I'm sure you have. Have you watched the Dirt movie on Motley yeah. Crue? Okay, mm-hmm. is is was it like that? And how crazy was it to know that? All of this music that was transcending rock and roll from, from the Motley Cruise and then to the Appetite for Destruction at GNR was kind of born right there when, when Axel and Izzy and those guys got together. Lit's being born right there. Motorhead's right there. Several bands are in that area that are playing at these iconic venues. And you're sitting here telling me in 2020 that 30 years ago you were experiencing this as a high school kid and you got to see it firsthand?
1: Yeah, man, that was our, so it was without, no one called, we never called each other and said, Hey, what are you doing Friday night? Or what are you doing Saturday night? We went to the sunset strip every Friday and every Saturday night from Anaheim to Hollywood. And we, we hopped in my 1978 shit Brown, Toyota Celica. We piled like six of us in there. And, um, you know, we, we knew a little, we knew a liquor store that would sell us Jack and, and, uh, We'd have the little half pints in our leather jacket inside pockets, and we would, we all had ROP class in high school. I don't know if, if it, it, it was like a trade school program they had in high school. And we took print shop so that we could print our band flyers for free. And we would go there with a case of flyers and we would park up in the Hollywood Hills. So we, we couldn't afford to pay to park, you know? And then we'd walk down to the strip with each one of us with probably a thousand flyers, and, and from about, 10 o'clock p.m. till 2 a.m. We would just walk up and down the strip and just talk to people and promote our band and hand out flyers and stickers and cassette tapes and stuff. And, um, you know, this is before there was no social media, obviously. So that was just hand-to-hand combat, you know, guerrilla marketing one-on-one. And, but yeah, we were 16 years old, 17 years old. and, and, And there were more people on the sidewalk in those days than there were in the clubs. There was... Uh, you know, between Gazzari's and Gil Turner's to the whiskey, that little stretch right there, there was probably four or 5,000 people on that side of the street every Friday and Saturday night, just God. six people wide asshole to elbow. And it was awesome. And I never saw a fight and it was just debauchery and fun. And just, it was our college really It's where we learned like how to meet people, how to promote, how to just, we made a lot of great friends, then you know a lot you, of got, you gotta
0: g- you gotta give me at least one specific pop off of like what what like what memory give me something that would stand out to the general guy that's just a, a a casual you know sunset i don't know everything about it but i love the idea of it and the culture of it and the rock band did you did you see some somebody stumble into a bar that you're like in like in nashville today you'll be at a bar in nashville and it's nothing to see bobby ritchie get up or jamie might get up or you would be there and get up at losers or Toby Key stands up, right? You see that quite a bit. What did you see on Sunset?
1: There was a lot less of that sort of jamming going on back then. There wasn't, like, in Nashville here, it's cool because it's cover bands and it's easy to jump up and play a song or two with somebody. Back then, it was very much, you had to pay to get into the club, to play at the club. You had to sell a certain amount of tickets to to get a slot on a good night, you know, Um, and like I said, there were more people out on the sidewalk because that's where the party was um so you would go to the strip every every weekend and maybe only dip into one of the clubs like once a month you know um because drinks were expensive and it was 10 bucks to get in and it was like well um you know my friends are out here anyway so it's kind of a unique a unique situation but yeah we saw the the guns and roses guys out on the strip we saw the um the warrant guys were staples, you know, the the poison guy. I mean, all that kind of mid to late eighties. It was and we were kids, we were like, whoa, dude, look, you know, it's Izzy Straddle. I remember I hung out with Izzy Stradlin one night right outside of the whiskey, just talking about guitars, you know, for 15, 20 minutes. And it was just like, holy shit, you know. But it was pretty dope, you know. My in anything kind of went. It was sort of an innocent time. It was sort of pre uh it was right before like AIDS and stuff, you know, so, and shit was going on in the parking lots and it was just crazy. My brother was, my brother was 15, you know, got his first blow job behind the whiskey at like, you know, <laughs> from some like hot 22 year old, like groupie chick, that you know? was fucking awesome. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a crazy time and it was a, it was definitely like to, to be able to have been a fly on the wall and been there and seen that and and to be a part of that at such an early age was Pretty
0: awesome. Yeah, I, I think that you know influences everything in a man's life, a woman's life, and I—that's I, where I was trans—transitioning into next is you know I, I always get it out of the way of uh, because people know my fascination with GnR and and how it started and and how why I, I started going to sunset when I was playing college baseball at UNLV in Las Vegas we would travel down there and try to find axel and, and this was in this was in ninety 93 94 like right before they broke up and right when the spaghetti incident was coming out right after the illusion albums were released in 91 92. And, but they were still kind of like on that arena tour with Metallica and they were doing the big, the big show still. So I always, I always tell people like, that's really like my mainstay of eighties rock music was, was the GNR album going into the early nineties in my high school and early college years. And then Um, you know, people ask me, well, why do you think they're such a good band? And I go, I don't know. I just respect their songwriting. I think their musicianship is great. I think that they were electrifying on stage. Their presence was awesome. Right. And I wanted to ask you that because you're, you're a, you're a critic of fine music. You write with so many different people. You understand the Jamie Johnsons. You're wearing a whiskey Myers hat. Those guys are awesome. Right. You understand good music. I just wanted to ask you, is GNR even though they were short-lived, they had a they had lies appetite. Use Your illusion one and two, the spaghetti incident, and then Axel kept the name and did Chinese democracy. Um, but now here they are back, this many years later, and they're doing what they're doing on this not in this lifetime tour and all over the world. In your opinion, were they as special as I think they were, or am I blowing it up, or are they just are they a badass band in Jeremy Popoff's opinion?
1: Well, I. I think, yeah, they're 100% a badass band. And I don't think they get, people just associate them with being Sunset Strip and Hollywood and, you know, partying and reckless and crazy. People forget, and I remember clearly because I was there when it was happening, they changed the Hollywood music scene. Um, You know, everybody likes to think that Nirvana and Pearl Jam and, you know, the whole Seattle scene kind of, which they eventually did, that definitely kind of swept away the Sunset Strip, like a you know a tidal wave, when that all came out. But um, but for a few years there, GNR were were the ones that brought danger and um, a fresh, raw, um, you know, disregard for what was happening before, and and kind of broke all the rules. And they they really changed that scene before it got changed forever by the whole you know, grunge thing. So, um, you know, people people that were dressing up like poison and wrapping their hair out and, you know, and putting on lipstick and shit, all of a sudden were like, oh, fuck, I'm going to wear cowboy boots and, and, and bandanas and let my hair go stringy and I'm going to get fucked up and get in a fight. But, you know, three years before that, that wasn't cool because the, the guys were like dressing up like girls and, you know, dancing around all silly. And then these guys came out like, it was like, oh, shit, you know? kind
0: of brought a little bit more punk rock to rock you know so so am i on am i right or wrong in your opinion when i say this and i'm going somewhere with this time in in the period because this is what's influencing you and aj to get where you were going to get in 98 99 which is that thing right over your right shoulder if you're looking at you or your left shoulder if you turn around right there um i everybody's like Hairband of the nineties, you know, the hair bands, it was, it was the, it was the poisons and the warrants and the, and the, and the Nelson brothers and all this stuff that was going on. And then they throw GNR in there and I go, wait a minute, back up. GNR is not a hair band. And I truly mean this. I truly feel this in my heart. They are nowhere near a hair band. And the way that you just explained it, they weren't a hair band. They weren't doing the, the things that, that, the, that, you know, people like the, you know, I, I I think I respect all of them. I think they're all great, but poison was doing something that was totally different motley crew was doing something totally different than what gnr came out and did in 86 87 88 is that fair to say that I they're understand. not a hairband
1: right well and here's the thing too i mean in the 80s like the first job that i ever got you know i was flipping pizzas at a drive-in movie theater you know i i doctored my driver's permit to say i was 16 i was only 15 and in order for me to work there i had to like tuck my hair up in my hat because you, your hair couldn't be past your collar, you know, in the eighties, a lot of jobs. Um, you couldn't have tattoos that, you know, if your tattoos showed below your sleeve, you couldn't work at a lot of places. So, you know, we all kind of grew our hair out in the eighties as, as a, almost like as a rebellious thing, just like kids are getting their face tattooed today. Cause it's like, you're not going to, you know, if I walk in, I mean I could walk into a board meeting with a suit on with this, you know, with my tattoos on my hands and no one's gonna think twice about it. But you know, if I put a teardrop right here, people are gonna be like, Well, what the fuck's this guy all about? Um that was what long hair was back in those days. I'm sure in the 70s is every you know, it was just a rebellious thing. So I don't think there's anything wrong with but I wouldn't say they were they were a hairband in the sense that um you know I don't know, man. They had more of that gutter you know sleazier well they were more Hanway rocks and more like that just that danger thing there there wasn't a lot of danger i mean and don't get me wrong like the poison guys are i love those guys and they're great dudes and i think they're um underrated songwriters and everything else and but there wasn't really anything dangerous about about that you know and when when gnr came out when you when you saw them live you were like holy shit like what someone's gonna get hurt Someone's going to get pregnant and, you know, someone may not make it through tonight. And it was just that feeling of like, what the fuck is going to happen tonight? And that, that was what may, I think made them as, as huge as they were. It was just that kind of just reckless abandon. And that to me is what, what rock and roll should be like it. In I, country music should be like that. And, and I think there needs to be something that makes you feel a little bit I don't want to say uncomfortable, but you need to kind of be like, "Whoa," you know. I mean, yeah. So, so perfect. when
0: you when you mentioned that just now about underrated songwriters, um, and this is the last the last thing that we're going to end on G and R is when I hear a lyric like strapped in the chair of the city gas chamber why i'm here i can't quite remember the surgeon general says it's hazardous to breathe i'd have another cigarette but i can't see and when you hear that and that was a radio hit song like that was a like that became an anthem in paradise city in the jungle and the sweet child of mine but if you go on there and you listen to like out to get me and my michelle my dad your daddy works in barno now that mommy's not around used to love her heroin but now she's underground if you hear all that i just thought always jeremy Popoff that that was a different level of songwriting of what you're saying is that that brought danger of like, man, they're actually talking about surgeon general and and how hard it is for these guys to see through the smoke and where they move from little rural country indiana and now they're in the jungle they're like on sunset and their life is a is, is just a whirlwind and and you're witnessing it firsthand so i i just always had a different feel for that music and i guess everybody picks their favorite bands i just always had a different feel at that time in my childhood of growing up in the 80s that gnr was just different when i heard appetite and then even when they did that acoustical stuff with you know she you're crazy and i used to love her and patience it was just on a different level of of marksmanship or music musicianship i just always felt that and i just wanted to get your opinion if you felt it of you know being around the sunset strip
1: yeah no 100 percent. and uh you know i'm i'm just thankful too that we were as young as we were when we were around all that because we still had obvious limitations you know there was still Bars and clubs we couldn't get into. We still, you know, even though we were kind of able, able to do whatever we wanted, we still had parents that, you know, would wonder where the hell we were at. So we couldn't just go completely insane when, we, you know, in those days we were 16, 17, you know, years old. Um, but it was neat to be there to and to, and to witness some of that. And, and uh, I saw GNR, GNR in Anaheim at the Celebrity Theater. It used to be this little, um, venue that held 3000 people in the round
0: oh, man. and then they would
1: curtain it off halfway through and they would just do half half arena and it was like basically 1500 people and I saw GNR in a half round and it was it was mind-blowing and my ears were ringing for days it was just like
0: was that you know. it was that late 80s yeah oh, I think that goodness. was 87 wow that that's right when Appetite was out then it was yeah. probably the Appetite tour oh man that's killer so you're 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 learning how to play this shitty electric guitar that your buddy had your your roman sunset on the weekends as a high schooler aj's doing the same thing with you and you guys are starting to hand out these flyers and your band is called what at this time razzle razzle is the first band that the the pop-off brothers started did that transition into kind of like the la gun story and transitioning like we talked about gnr did it start to slowly morph into what would become lit in the in the later 80s i mean well, excuse me in yeah, the, in the same, later 90s
1: same guys um kevin our bass player um, uh, we've known since junior high um we we you know we um we were friends because of music in the first place and then we and we learned how to play music together and um after i mean early 90s we we got really popular as Razzle. We were selling out the whiskey. We were selling out the Troubadour. We were selling out the Roxy. Um, you know, record companies were looking at us and stuff. But we were getting older in our musical, we were getting better at our instruments, we were getting better at writing songs, and we were getting a little older and we started to go like, mm, I don't know that we that this is the direction that we want to go. And I don't know that we wanna be a Hollywood band, you know. We so we started to um, kind of experiment and just, you know, grow as a band. And we, we rented this warehouse in Anaheim and we decided it was kind of crazy, but we decided to scrap everything that we had at the time. We scrapped our mailing list. We scrapped our phone call list. We scrapped our name and we took like six months off and we just completely rewrote our life and we just re you know, started from scratch really, and then and then I picked up the phone and started calling, cold calling little shitty clubs, not in Hollywood, but just wherever. And we would be the first band on a Tuesday night, you know, at some shithole. But I didn't want anybody to, you know, our friends knew, but I didn't want like to use the popularity of of our first band to get any sort of favors for this band. I wanted it to sort of speak for itself, and so that's kind of really how it started, and it was that using the education that we got from the sunset strip taking that into the 90s being influenced by all this new great music um you know we were huge fans of you know alice and chains and stone temple pilots and um and then we also started getting really into um the older stuff you know and we started getting really into elvis costello and and um and more of the songwriting aspect of it and. you know cut off all her hair and just it was just a time where we were exploring who we wanted to be and i think that's what um we grew a ton between you know like 94 and 99 we were we were just on this like fast moving train of just like let's try that well what about that chord what about that note i don't know if that works why the fuck not let's try it and we just kind of did it all and then then we honed it back in and i think the the record that blew up that blew us up was was a much more fine tuned and focused record because that, that was after ten years of honing our, honing our craft, I guess.
0: Before you get to that point of releasing what would become your your staple, well, what would be regarded as for a lot of, a lot of years. Why, why, what did somebody like Lane Staley or Scott Weiland have that the pop-off brothers, Jeremy and AJ are looking at as influence? What would a band like Alice in Chains do with that kind of rock grunge? And then you had, and then you mentioned STP, which was Scott Weiland, which was, I, I don't even know how to describe that guy except just insanely talented but i don't know if he even knew how to i don't know how to i don't know anything about scott weiler is what i'm trying to say i just know that he was captivating to watch and listen to you is that what got you because though now if you're talking to me and you're saying well chad tell me who you would listen to you just named the two other bands that like when velvet revolver formed after g and r broke up and scott was there i was like that dude is on a different level and so was lane staley before that tragedy happened um why did they catch your attention? What is it like a band like that that was forming what was what lit was becoming?
1: I mean you know guitar tone wise it was still kind of in that metal hard rock vein um which I could relate to and that was what my guitar kind of sounded like that was what I was aiming for but the their voices their the songwriting, the melodies um. The, the the weird chord changes and just the things that were like kind of a little bit left the center, um, you know, grabbed our ears, grabbed our attention um, and, and seeing just sort of a new school. Some of it we weren't all that into. I was never really a big Pearl Jam fan. You know, I, I was a, you know, it was a little bit too. Kind of hippie-ish for me. I was way more into again a, the danger, you know. SCP. There was a danger. And, and why? Why? A- why
0: are, it's like you read a book that I that was written about me, and I'm a nobody. But like you just said, the words that I would literally say to somebody two days ago that goes Eddie Vedder and Pearl Jam were this, and I go, well, if you listen to the Temple of the Dog album with Chris, I could take Cornell over Pearl Jam any day. Off of that album, you know, and what they were doing with temple dog and you just took the words out of my mouth. Like, why is it though? Why is it just the danger dealer? Why did some guys like you and I, and you're obviously way more into music than I ever was or ever will be, but why would you ever say something like that? And why would I feel like that about saying like, I just wasn't into Pearl Jam when a lot of people were
1: there, there was a, was some of those bands that I think the ones that we were just talking about, there was a raw, um, vulnerability. I guess. And it was kind of fret at the time, it was very fresh for somebody to be so talented, somebody that could have been in an 80s hairband or whatever, but you never heard of them until now. And they're just pouring their fucking guts out on the table. And they're and it's, you know, and I say danger, I think there was definitely danger involved. I mean shit. The first time I went to the very first Lollapalooza. And Soundgarden played, and Cornell was climbing up in the rafters and shit, and just like you're like, oh shit, if he falls, he's dead. That's it. There's no, you don't, you don't get up from that one. And he's just hanging from, you know, and so. But um, musically, they just were, they, you know, you got goosebumps. I mean, when you heard that shit, dude. You know? I'm sorry, I,
0: I, I just cannot believe how, how. Like congruent like how consistent it is with my mindset of of music and I'm not just saying this Jeremy like I'm really mean like that's how I feel if you go into my studio you will see exactly what you're saying and you'll see that deal there and you'll see. the 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 jar of flies album and you'll see stp and you'll see velvet and it was just there was just a different feel and that's it's so cool because when you listen to the the early stages of that album or what was going to become after what you're saying it's i think it's so honorable that you could have very easily catapulted yourself with lit you know after your success of razzle but you decided to go Freaking totally organic, man. You went total guerrilla warfare again after you already spent all that time doing it to start one band that, that made it really. You were making it and you were selling out and you had the record, guys. And you're right in a let you know, you're right there at Capitol Records and all of those areas down there that they're on to you. And you said, Nope, scrap it. This isn't what I want. My roots are here. And now my, my next question is at this time of your influences in, in the in the in, in, in what we've already talked about with STP and, and Alice you have a country influence too. You have, are, is it starting to form already? Cause you mentioned the top 40 and your dad and radio and the Kenny Rogers. If anybody ever really dissects Kenny Rogers, he wasn't coming up as a country star when he got discovered, you know, he kind of oh. transitioned into that Dolly Parton islands in the stream down the road, but he was more of a pop star that, that, that got, that got found and, and his story's really cool. Right. But are you starting to get influenced by country at this time as well?
1: Well, when, when I was a kid, um, so my dad's first radio job he ever had was at a country station and my brother wasn't born yet. I was not even a year old. He packed my mom and I up and we went to Hobbs, New Mexico, and he got a radio job at, you know, the radio station was in a trailer and it had like one tower in the field, you know, but it was a country station. And then he got a job in, you know, San Bernardino, California, at another country station. So I was little, my first exposure to music was whatever my dad was playing on the radio. So, you know, Charlie Rich and, um, you know, and Waylon Jennings. I mean, I, I remember, you know, I specifically remember sitting in my room at like five years old, six years old and listening to Waylon Jennings. And just thinking how cool it sounded. I didn't know anything about country music. No one was telling me, oh, that's country, you know, or that's this or that's that. I just thought like, wow, you know, the stories and the, just the vibe and his voice and everything. And I was captivated as a little kid. Um, I loved Kenny Rogers. I had, you know, I had long hair and I had the 45 of lady, you know, and I used to wear it out. And I just thought it was, I mean, it is, it's a fucking great song. Oh, well, it's a yeah. perfectly written song. Um to this day, when that bridge comes in, I get goosebumps. Every oh,
0: dude, you're you're giving them to me right now just hearing <laughs> you talk about Lady. I love but, that song.
1: Yeah. So, but but when I really started getting into country, it, it was really more the late nineties. Like I remember being on a plane, and this is gonna sound kind of cheesy, but you know, it had been a lot. Of, I had been so immersed in the rock business in the rock world for so long, and I remember getting on a plane and sitting there and hearing Faith Hill coming through the the speakers. I was like, Oh, she's, who is that? She sounds hot. You know, that's a good <laughs> song. You know? And then I saw the video of like breathe. And I, the whole time I saw, I was watching and going
0: ding, 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 ding. Yeah. She was, you got so, the answer, right?
1: And then, you know, when we started getting some, um, success and started doing a lot of, we, we did top of the pops in England and, um, it was lit red hot chili peppers and Dixie chicks. And, um, that TV show was set up where there was the three bands were playing and it was live and it was three different stages. So, you know, I, we were hanging out all day with the Dixie chicks. You know, I was like trying to flirt with the violin player. She wouldn't give me the damn time of day, but, um,
0: I think she went on to marry Charlie Robinson, didn't she? <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: But I think she did maybe,
1: um, somebody. Yeah. But anyways, it, it was in the, it was a few years later when, um, I almost got a little bit, I don't want to say burned out on rock, but I started to get a little bit disenchanted with the music business and with just a lot of the new rock that was coming out. I felt like they were, that's when emo got real big and it was getting to be a little cheesy again. And it was, it was missing something for me. And I I started to get a little bit frazzled like, fuck, I don't really want to do that. Um, And so I started just kind of, our manager had moved to Nashville and um and then our my brother and i's parents got in a a motorcycle accident and hit by a drunk driver and it was kind of a dark period it was around 05 and my manager just said hey you need to come out to nashville and you need to write some songs and just get out of your head and get out of california and just just see what happens and so um i came out on a whim and um First guy I ever wrote with was Jeffrey Steele who I still write with him all the time. He's one of my dear friends and one of my favorite people on the planet. One of the best songwriters I think ever. Um,
0: Give us some examples, please.
1: um, Oh God. I mean, what hurts the most? My wish. Um, um, God, man, I can't, now you're putting me on the spot. He's
0: he's awesome.
1: I mean, put it this way. When you go into his office, he's got plaques like my little plaque here. He's got those on the ground. i um, like at the bottom of the wall. Like, you know, <laughs> he's you
0: so many hits.
1: One if you're not careful, but he's, um, just a great, talented, talented dude. But, um, you know, that first trip, I met some great people. And on the way to the airport, when I was leaving, I was on my phone, probably my Blackberry at the time. And I was booking my next trip out. And so I came back out a month later and that was the trip I met Jamie Johnson. And, um, which was funny because we were both signed to EMI and um, we were both going through a divorce and we were both um, kind of in a weird little transitional period in our life. We both had little kids and we were both. And so um, this guy, Tom Luter at EMI um, thought, man, this is let's put pop off with Jamie and see what happens. Cause we've got this just redneck as fuck guy from Alabama and we got this rock guy with tattoos, a long goatee from California. This is either going to be awesome or it's going to be a total train wreck, but it'll be a great story either way. <laughs> and um, and uh, Jamie wasn't drinking at the time. And we, we met for coffee first and we just hung out. And within a couple hours, we were just like long lost pals. And we've been like, you know, tight brothers ever since then and gone through a lot together. He actually married me and my wife today. Um, my current wife, he, um, he was there the night we met and then he got ordained and married us, um, uh, which was cool, but,
0: uh. oh, I can't imagine the voice, dude. I just want to hear his voice as an ordained minister. Like, um, I'm very opinionated about that man too. I want to get back before, right after this, I want to get back to how that influence is, is taking place. But, um, the success of that thing over your left shoulder, I want to get to, but I'm really opinionated. Like I tell everybody, I think I'm a really opinionated person, but I'm not ignorant Jeremy, to where i'm not going to sit here and go you better vote for trump and get out of my house if you don't like this i'm not that guy but i just have really staunch opinions like i think the Lonesome song is the best country album of all time and i know that waylon jennings and merle and 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 jerry reed and, and there's so many unbelievable albums song for song guy clark i just got turned on to him he's amazing but i just take that lonesome song track to track and I think it's the best country album that's ever been done. And I and I think that the one he did right after that is close to the best country album. I'm just really yeah. opinionated about Jamie Johnson because I really think that if he wanted to, he would have been... Selling out arenas like Stapleton's doing. I think that he would have been the biggest thing that if he didn't, you know, do what he did as far as the way he wanted to do it. And 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 now he's that Willie Nelson cult following. He is invited onto every tribute show, every Charlie Daniels volunteer jam, every Merle Haggard birthday, the Willie Nelson Outlaw tribute, the Kenny Rogers tribute just now. He gets invited in George Strait. He writes with the king and, and does duets with him or duos with him because he's so respected by guys like you and in the industry because of who he is. And I have just always have had this really fat, strong fascination with Jamie Johnson ever since I heard the dollar. But then that turned in to that morning sun and all that. And just, it's amazing how you transcended into his life. And I think it has a lot to do with, your upbringing and how how open-minded you were with your music and your influences you meet this guy and that's why it happened because you guys had so much in common with your influences i bet because jamie's not just a hundred percent country he knows a lot about old traditional country but he also understands southern rock and zz top in texas and guns and roses and and lit and all that
1: you know jamie can sit there and and and, you know if you see him you see him in concert enough times you'll eventually hear him play a Metallica song and you'll hear, I mean, he knows that guy's a damn musical encyclopedia and he grew up, you know, like we all did. Um, all, I mean, you know, all our buddies, I mean, Randy Hauser played, Mom we're standing in a cover band, you know, when he was coming up, I mean, all these country guys that are around today definitely went through a rock phase, you yeah. know, and now even yeah. country phase, but, um, but yeah, Jamie and I hit it off more because we were living parallel lives. It, had, it was, it almost had much less to do with music and much more like, we were just like long lost brothers and In the we person you were different from our, from our backgrounds are, but what we were living was very similar. And during that time with that lonesome song and even because a lot of the stuff from, um, uh, the guitar song was, um, you know, the, a lot of that stuff was written and recorded around the same time. It just came out later, but, um, you know, during that time, he had a room at my house in California. I had a room at his house in Nashville, and we were we were always going back and forth. And and, and it was just it, it was, you know, he made that record with his own money. He didn't have a record deal. That record was made out of pure. A lot of the songs on that record are were demos that um, you know.
0: Uh, Isn't that amazing? So
1: that was just awesome to. did he take back.
0: it? did he? did it to the labels after? Right? Or somebody him oh, yeah. and his manager took and it to he the had labels already,
1: after? He'd already recouped and made his money back, and you know, people in the record companies were listening to it because it was so great. And then record companies, but you know, and our guy walked by and go, what the fuck is that? And somebody like, oh, that's Jamie johnson They're like, what? Well, and um, so yeah,
0: so you feel the same? Like that album is as strong as a country album can get, and you have a personal oh, touch on it, which we'll get to. But that song, that album, is amazing. Is that fair to say?
1: Oh fuck! I mean, I've got one of those for that album. It's usually I just I just moved here full time. I've, I've had this house for three years. I haven't figured out where I'm gonna hang on my shit yet. But um,
0: <laughs> I see a deer head or something over there. I don't know if it's an African game. I, I see the base of a taxidermy mount. Is that a whitetail? Yeah. Oh, look at that!
1: See, um, I, I'm still setting up, the, setting it up here. But um,
0: so they, they, yeah, they, I'm,
1: proud they as, I'm proud as fuck of that record. Uh, oh man, proud to have been there during it. I'm proud was of it
0: recorded there. in L.A., Jeremy? Sorry to interrupt you. Was it recorded Bottle, in L.A. with Shooter? Was, yeah, Bottle with Bottle Shooter.
1: Um. Well, you know, um, Dave Dave Cobb was there and Dave Shooter Cobb. was there, and you know, he was what a story. He was staying at my house in, in Fullerton, you know. Oh, yeah, dang it, it, dude. it was a fun time man it was crazy man was i wish
0: crazy. i could have been there for just one night of it man just to see it go down god <laughs> like, oh, what a cool story but so you're you're going into the late 90s now with this new band and these influences are there and that album over your left shoulder my looking at you right here on tv is comes out and the cover art is is it a, is it kind of a pinupish kind of a deal uh, off of a, of a tattoo a tattoo studio vibe? Is that fair to say? Or where's the influence for the cover, the album cover art come from?
1: There was a lot of um, in that album packaging, there was a lot of tattoo related sort of icons. We were very into, we all had vintage Cadillacs. Um, we, you know, Vegas was our second home. We loved, the Rat Pack and show business and the movie swingers. And that was kind of like our whole life around that time. And um, the cover art, there was this old picture of a, a scene from a pool in Vegas. Um, I don't know if it was a postcard or an ad or something from the Sands hotel. And there was a girl at a craps table that was floating in the pool. And to me at the time, I was like, that is just so fucking crazy. And that's so Vegas. And I love it. So we were, I brought that picture into the, to the label when all the guys were all sitting around talking about ideas. And I was just like, man, I just, I love the pool. I love this vibe of this, you know, this, you know, as crazy as Vegas was, there's this innocence about what's happening here. And I just, so I wanted something, uh, we wanted something that was iconic where when you saw the girl on the raft, you knew it was us. But it's crazy because that album Dude, our our pictures not on it like people saw that for the first time they're like what the fuck is lit you know who's that girl <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's I, and I'm telling you like if you if you do some digging on it how uh, iconic it is it's like it is lit right that's how a lot of people like establish their first meeting of lit and their introduction to it and then it sticks with them and then you mentioned the rat pack um now you're telling me you're influenced by the by the deans and the franks and the joeys and the sammies and a a quick story for you just to get it out there so you know more common ground for you and i is my grandpa carmen philippone was first-generation American, he grew up in a town called Steubenville, Ohio, and that's where my mom, Faith Philippone, was born. And she was born in the 50s in Steubenville, Ohio, which was... Little Italy and my grandpa's best friend in Steubenville, who he moved to Nevada with, where I got my roots in Nevada. I'm in Reno, Tahoe. They started in Vegas. Um, he moved out here with his best friend, whose name was was Dean Dino Crichezzi, who later became Dino Martino. And I have pictures in the studio of my grandpa walking down the streets in black and white in Steubenville, Ohio, which would become Dean Martin. And that was my my grandpa Carmen Filippone's best friend. And that's how I got my roots in Nevada. Was my grandpa moved to Vegas with Dean? And and kind of in my grandpa, grandpa got into, he died a pit boss in the casino industry, but his roots wow. were with the Rat Pack. How cool is that?
1: That's amazing. <laughs> that's, yeah, dude, as soon as you said Steubenville, I was like, oh, I've read this book. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so my mom was born in Steubenville, Ohio in 1954. And that's how my grandpa, Carmen Philippone got out here. So, so now you, and then you threw in right after that, you said you would love the movie Swingers, which, and I, and I'm just going on a whim here. I'm just guessing, but, and and you might just say, let's move on. But I'm a, I am infatuated with this show on Netflix called the chef show after John's movie, the chef. And now he's with chef Choi and he's cooking on all of these episodes with all these influences that, 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 that are on there. You need to get on there because the roots of LA and in your, but you have a, you have a, a passion for culinary art or food in the bar life too, in the restaurant business, right?
1: Yeah. I own, I own one. <laughs> yeah. um, it play it's in, in Orange County, California called the Slide Bar. And um of course right now it's not open, but it's uh it's a rock and roll um, you know, bar restaurant, music venue. Um Yeah, so I love that stuff. Um, yeah, that, you know, that that that's just
0: it's 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 really cool that john favreau has this passion of music and cooking and he and he lets it be known through the show and in his guests and music and movies and comedy and and but bill burr's on there and and a few other people have been on there cooking with him but i just thought that it was cool that that movie swingers and him and vince and what that movie did i was the same way with that and then made came out and then yeah. I, I just love that whole that whole that, that 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 was like the pulp fiction of comedy and it was like and then quentin tarantino in 95 96 was doing the Pulp Fictions and the Reservoir Dogs, and I just got infatuated with that. And right before that, you know, during... During that time, he wrote that movie True Romance with Christian Slater and Roseanne Arquette, and I could watch that movie once a week to this day. It's just, it's just a cool vibe in the chemistry that that your influences are being done by the same thing. That I'm, I'm being totally transparent. These are, if you go into this part of the studio, you'll see every Quentin T- Quentin Tarantino movie poster, and you'll see the Sopranos posters because of that that vibe of that time in my life. It was Sopranos yeah. Sundays, man. We met to cook and watch Sopranos every freaking Sunday. Sunday, man for all six seasons and it just influenced my life big time
1: we we reenacted the walking scene from Reservoir Dogs in one of our videos and it's funny the uh, after a place in the Sun we were recording the Atomic record and we rented this mansion up in the uh, Hollywood Hills and just so we could all stay there and at that point you know we all had some success and we had cars and dogs and girls and whatever so we needed a place where we could all you know stay and it was right across the street from Tarantino's house, and so we man, we rang that dude's doorbell every fucking day. He never <laughs> answered it. We we're like, hey man, we're neighbors. We live there. Can, can you come outside? Can we talk to you? So can
0: you, you love play? Tarantino too?
1: Oh fuck, dude, yeah, dude is I'm he not, not awesome? Dude. Yeah. What, you know, what it's did you a funny story about made? So we, because we were very, you know, to me.
0: What we hey, real quick, Ger- real quick, Jeremy, just, I want this to be, uh, I just want to say this and I love that. I want this story, but I want people to understand that I did not read any of this part of your life. I had no idea about your influences or Tarantino or this story about <laughs> made. I just think it's amazing that we're going back and forth with so much. I just think that's the cool part about conversation and podcasting is my point. All right. So yeah, go ahead with the, no, the main no. story.
1: Well, we, so we were, you know, we had said in multiple interviews that we were, you know, they, they, People would say, like, "How do you, How would you describe your band?" to Somebody that doesn't, you know, doesn't, hasn't heard you yet, I, and I would say, "We're somewhere. We're across between Swingers and Spinal Tap," and um, and it, it was very became very known that we were big fans of that movie and and movies in general. Quentin Tarantino movies probably influences as much as music did, you know, in in the, in those times. I mean, um, but so we get a call from their camp. And they want us to come to a private screening of the new Vince Vaughn John Favreau movie. It's their follow up to Swingers, and and now at this point, you know they've both gone on to have a bunch of success in different movies. But this made was their movie of them two coming back together and kind of following up on on that. And we were just, we were like, "Are you fucking serious? Like, are they going to be there? Oh shit!" <laughs> and um, so we go in this tiny, tiny theater, maybe held. 40 people it was on a studio lot and uh so it was made and at the beginning before the movie starts Favreau gets up and he's like okay guys everybody thanks for coming there's like 30 people in there um just want to thank you guys for coming and just want you to know that you know it's not quite done yet so forgive me for the you know he's like making excuses for it like we do with demos we're like no this you know the guitar is going to sound different the vocals are going to be a little but just you know Uh, and, and so we were just sitting there watching in awe, like, wow, he's like, he's insecure about this movie. Okay, well, let's see it. So, um, so we watched the movie and we're dying laughing and and it's fucking brilliant. And we're so excited. And I didn't realize at the time, the guy sitting right in front of me is Vince Vaughn and I'm like, he fucking cracks me up. (laughs) And so I'm laughing out loud, hysterically at like 99% of the shit he says and, you know, people are looking at me like, like nudging me like, dude, he's going to think you're fucking with him. I'm like, what? And like, oh, that's him right there. <laughs> and um, but um, they wanted us to write a song for the scene in the at the bachelor party when uh, when the stripper yeah. and, uh, and, and Tom Morello's in there. And, you know, but it was perfect. Like the music in the movie was perfect. And so afterwards, I told those guys I got to meet them. They signed our swingers posters. And um oh, Dwight Yoakum
0: was there. Oh and, god uh,
1: he, it was this crazy moment of like Vince Vaughn, John Favreau, Dwight Yoakum, and then our asses. You
0: know, was Dwight right. was Dwight in one of those first in May? I know he came on and he was in like a bunch of movies with Vince Vaughn, wedding crashers and yeah, yeah. and, and, and
1: he pals. Yeah, he was no. in the movie.
0: You talk Dude, about in you talk about a badass musician. That's one of my favorites right there, man. you feel oh, the same yeah, about
1: that, that night he got he he walked away. We all got to meet him. He walked away. He was wearing like these fucking tightest jeans, like you could count the change in his back pocket as he's walking away. And then he got into a like an old seventies El Camino and just just drove away. And we were just like,
0: "The man, huh?
1: (laughs) The man." There you go. There's fucking Dwight. But um, anyways, I told those guys, I was like, "Dude, that's a fucking great movie, and there's nothing that I can offer you that's going to make it any better." As much as I would love to have a song in your movie i just, it's done, man. You're good. They were like, really? You think so? So that was, that was like moments like that were like, we got an opportunity to just be kind of just for me, just to even see that movie like six months before it came out. Was fucking
0: huge. That's th- this life, dude. That's why I always say hashtag this life. I mean, like <laughs> that right there makes me go. I can picture you and I can picture Vince on there with the tip scene when he's tipping the doorman and the bellman at the hotel, and he's like, "How about the, you know the twenty and give it back and all." That. I literally will fall down to this day. I'll just fall out laughing. Like I-, I tell people that that Wedding Crashers is is the funniest movie. Again, opinionated. It's funnier than Chevy Chases, and I love Chevy and all of them. But the the Caddyshacks and the fletches and the vacations. If you. T- take wedding crashers from beginning to end it just i i've never laughed that hard in my life consistently to the i, I i'll watch it once a month still and just laugh yeah. he's Hot he just it. got it man so so that that's that's really cool that influence is coming from movies tarantino the john favreau's the Vin, the vince the vince Vaughns, and now the album comes out and were you ready for it were you ready for um you know the, it had a, the biggest single of your careers on this album is that fair to say My own worst enemy goes to radio. And what happens, what whirlwind goes down? How long did it chart? I I heard numbers of like 13, 14, 15 weeks at the top of the the music charts on Billboard. Tell me what it did. And if I'm wrong on that, correct me. But were you ready for what was getting ready to happen?
1: I mean, I think we were definitely ready. We were chopping at the bit to... Be on the road and to have an album out and to just get out and do what we had been working our, our asses off for so many years trying to get to. So we were like, we were way ready for that. We had no idea what we were, you know, about to experience. I mean, it was dream stuff. I mean, you know, we we left in a motorhome in a Winnebago from Orange County. Um, everything got moved up because the because the song kind of got leaked to radio and it started getting played on all these big stations. The record company was like, we're moving it up. And so we, you know, we, we just finished the record. um, The week between Christmas and new year's, we mastered the record in New York. We flew back home to spend new year's with our friends and on January 3rd, K rock started playing it. And we're like, Holy shit. You know, they weren't supposed to start playing that till, you know, like the beginning of March, and so we rented a motorhome and left Orange County in January, and it didn't come back until September of the following year. So we were gone for eighteen months, completely nonstop. We were home maybe a collective total of fourteen days in in a year and a half, and um, we just kept going and kept going and kept going. Tours got bigger, shows got bigger, went to different countries, and just you know it was it was you know, doing. Oh, we have next Thursday off and we're in Syracuse. Okay, cool. We're going to fly to LA and you're going to be on The Tonight Show. Oh, okay. So I guess we don't have any days off. And so we just, you know, all that crazy shit was going on. And then meanwhile, the song was just on fire. And it just wasn't, it wasn't slowing down and it just got to this ridiculous point of, then it was like, we get a call I go, it's top 10. And then the next week it's top five. And then the next week it's number one. And we're like, but we're still driving around in a motorhome, like taking turns driving, you know, with two crew guys, and uh, we're pulling up to these festivals, and and you know, there's you know 15 16 prevos and then we pull up like bum, 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 we're we just pull <laughs> up in our yeah you know, with our microwave bean and cheese burritos and our natural light cans and, and George, uh,
0: George Jefferson starting to sing the the Jefferson song
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, it was awesome you know it was it, it, and then yeah it's it was number 1 for 11 weeks and then um
0: wow but it
1: was top 5 it was top 3 for just like the whole half of the year it was you know um and it's not something that you can, you can't anticipate that you can't plan for that. A record company can't tell you that that's likely. I mean, that's just, that's, I don't know, that's 99% luck and, you know, being in the right place at the right time and just, you know, it's the epitome of lightning in a bottle, I guess. It's just, I mean.
0: And a lot of bands, a lot of bands don't get to experience that There's a lot of bands that, that don't have a a single that charts like that. and, does it mess with your psyche going into the late, the next stages of, of the pop off brothers careers of chasing that again, does that mess with a person's mind of like, we got to get that again. And does that inhibit you or does it start to cause anything like any, any kind of lows that when you, when something doesn't get to that level?
1: Well, the song that we released after my worst enemy was sort of the sacrificial lamb. Like we knew it wasn't going to get, the attention that it that it it was it, that it was just going to be the redhead stepchild of lit, and we would have to wait till the third single for it maybe got some attention. But even then, like I mean, even to this day, twenty one years later, "My Enemy" still gets played on the radio as many times a week as it was being played in nineteen ninety nine. Wow, it's fucking bizarre! Because now it's on classic rock radio stations and adult contemporary radio stations and pop stations, and you know. Jack FM, it's like crossed over all these different genres now. Um, so you know, you add it all up, it's still a couple thousand times a week that that's not. But now, then the streaming and the YouTubes and the you know, all the different shit. So it, it's it's crazy. Uh, you know, it, it could definitely fuck with our heads if we let it. I think we've gotten it. it maybe did back then, but now we've just kind of gotten to the place where we can. We're just happy to have been there and then had had the opportunity to be in the room when that song fell out of the sky and we just got to ride the wave and it actually still to this day, it's just it's fucking my wife, you know, You're like, Rick,
0: uh, that's, it, it's gotta be, it's gotta be like, I mean, I don't know if there was a bigger song that charted that long and then I don't know for sure, but like, it had to be right there setting records in the nineties, right. For to be on the chart to be number one for 12 or 13 weeks and to stay in the top five or three for six months. And then the 21 year, like this was, was it one of the the biggest songs of the decade?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, Fucking crazy. So what does
0: Ziploc, what does Ziploc do? Or was Ziploc the one that was the, was the sacrificial lamb? Yeah. So
1: Ziploc, I think made it, got to like number 10, It, it, you know, went like this and then went like this and then enemy was still sitting up there, you know, then miserable came out and that was the one with Pamela Anderson in the video. And that exposed us to a to a bigger, more worldwide mainstream audience. Cause we were all of a sudden our video was getting played on entertainment tonight and access Hollywood, and you know, because she was such a big star. So people discovered us because she was in our video. And then Miserable was that was the number three rock song, I think, of that year. It went up all the way up to number three, hung up there, hung in there for a long time. But that was. Because of the video and just the crazy exposure it got us. Um, And it was funny because that basically, when that song went, when that, when Miserable took off, it basically meant we were going to be on the road for another year. And so, um, and we were just like, okay, let's go, you know? And um, I mean, it was, just it was awesome. And again, talk about like how cool it was to be the shit we got to see in the 80s, you know? Fast forward. Now it's 99, 2000, 2001. We're, we're, we're doing festivals with like, you know, we did a festival at angel stadium with black Sabbath and Ozzy, you know, and the Foo fighters. And, um, you know, we got, we, we did festivals with velvet revolver we did festivals with Hole and with the chili peppers and with STP and, you know, that those were the days where we would like play and the crowd would go crazy and we were sweaty, or whatever. And we'd run backstage and we'd take showers, put our, you know, dry clothes back on, make a cocktail and run back out to the amphitheater to watch our fucking heroes play. And it was just like, you know, looking at each other going, fuck, can you believe this? Like we just played this. And now we're <laughs> here watching stone temple pilots. Like this is insane. God, so, dude, how you, know, cool. that was, you know, that was awesome. And, and to, I think honestly that, period of time, like I see posters, you know, when we were moving and stuff, you know, pulling stuff out of the rafters and just seeing posters of the bands that we were sharing bills with and just going like, this might've been the best time for rock and roll in my life. You know, I mean, I could, argue different eras of rock and roll that maybe were cooler, but that late nineties, early two thousands, some of the bands that we got to share stages with, you know, we got to open up for kiss. I mean, man there were some fucking pinch me, holy shit moments where, you know, and pretty awesome too. When you get like when Steven Tyler shakes your hand and tells you he's a big fan and, you know, sings a, sings a backup vocal on one of your songs, you know, cause he happens to be there in the studio and you're just like, what the fuck happened? What is that? Like, you know, yeah. You know, and the funny thing is too, um, every record company in LA and New York passed on my worst enemy. Everyone said no. My me Miserable, and there were two other songs on our demo. And every label, including RCA, who eventually signed us, they passed the first two times as well. So the crazy thing, and I always tell that to people, especially musicians, it's like, you, you can't, you know, and I feel the same way today about politicians. They fucking tell you, ah, we don't hear a single. Nah, you got to do this. You got to do that. You got to, you know, they don't know shit. You know, it's the biggest rock song of the last fucking two decades. And every one of them passed on it and said they didn't hear a single. It's like, God, they're man. the ones that are deciding which, what singles you hear. That's yeah. what's fucked. You know, they're the That's ones. Right. Who- I,
0: I said it yesterday on a podcast about if somebody would just come to my, one of my backyard get togethers and they just take the consensus of those 80 people when a song plays by a whiskey myers or something that's not considered radio country right and i'm not saying that whiskey's even chasing that or your your bands are even chasing that anymore but if they heard what you're doing right now and what and and what we're listening to on our speakers at our pool parties and barbecues and if they heard a brent cobb song that was produced by dave cobb that was written by you know brent and whoever you want to name I don't know if you saw the new news that him and Luke Combe wrote a song the other day, and it's going to be on the Opry uh, app in the, in the deal that Opry is going to put out this Saturday night. Luke's going to sing it, um, or maybe it's a, a week from Saturday, but it's an it's amazing. So I'm sitting there going, if you came back here and took the consensus of this, how can you not tell me that L-80 people saying don't turn that shit off isn't going to be the consensus of what people want to hear in their cars? Why is it so decided by the way that this country radio has gone and rock radio has gone? I don't know. If Jamie Johnson would ever be played on today's traditional country music radio, which I know that Jamie probably doesn't give a shit, but it's amazing that like Stapleton's even on there with the way Stapleton does. But it's I just think that what you say hits home with me because who is making the decisions on what is considered country music? And I have my thoughts on it, and we don't need to get into that. It has a lot to do with the city you live in. I know that there's a lot of politics that go into that. There has to be, but it just blows my mind that some—
1: and I think that, that social media and streaming are, are as much as they are kind of bad for us. They're also taking some of the power away. There's a lot of the old guards still a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of people still holding the keys to the gate, you know, and in country, probably mostly country, but in rock too. Um, and so, but they're slowly getting replaced by guys like you and me and our friends and the 80 people in your backyard, the 80 people in your backyard at a party are the new AR guy to a lot of, uh, you know, to, a, to a large degree, because, you know, when y'all add it to your playlist and y'all start following those people on social media and more importantly, start showing up to the gigs, that's, that's the new a guy really, you know?
0: No, I, I think it's true. And I, in the guys that I've been talking with in the music part of, part of my life is they say the same thing and I just I just I just have I just knew there was a connection between you and I that was different Jamie be like oh y'all will love each other And, and I think that that's why I'm so into the songs that you guys are still putting out is because it's that what we just talked about for the last 80 minutes is I just see that and I sense it and I feel it and it's real to me and I don't look at it as I call it cubicle country or cubicle songwriting I look at it as real time shit man like this dude gets it he he understands what I was feeling when I was watching Pulp Fiction and, and, and I what I, what, what I was feeling when I heard that song for the first time and when my dad would put on a Kenny Rogers album or a Don Williams album when I was growing up the, 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 that, that scene of Don Williams laying in his bed listening to that little transistor radio and going to bed with Wolfman Jack that was me man I had on K-Wins and you mentioned K-Rock I had that on on the syndication going like what's coming on next man or oh, it was Friday Night Videos and D Snyder was singing We're Not Gonna Take It and then ripping down the wall and then it beastie beasties came on with you gotta fight, and then all of a sudden Kevin DeBrow was singing Come On Feel the Noise with Quiet right And I was just like, Dude, this has got me, man. And 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 when I talked to you, I sensed that you were probably listening to them same three songs I just named, feeling the same. I was in sixth oh, grade, dude. I was in sixth grade going, dude, what is this?
1: Our, our Ziploc video. You know, I wrote the treatment to that video, and and I wrote in the treatment, I was like, and we we reenact twisted sister. Um, I want a rock video, um, and yep. D Snyder is going to play the role of the father. I didn't know D at the time, and the record company was just like, "Oh, cool, dig it." And they got a hold of D, and D said, "Yeah, I'd love to do it." And we've been friends with D ever since. God,
0: dude, I didn't even know that. I had no idea that you were friends with D Snyder. He was just, I love. I got the Stay Hungry album in my in my studio. The album vinyl, freaking dude, it's yeah. unreal. It, it's, it's unbelievable.
1: I brought, I got, I brought my Stay Hungry vinyl to, he had, he came and had brunch with all of us at my restaurant, um, brought his whole family and my whole family was there. We all sat around and, um, and then he signed some stuff. But he used to, when D, whenever we were on tour, we would roll through Connecticut. He was living, he was living there. He had a radio morning radio show and he could never come to our gig because he had to be up at three o'clock in the morning to get ready to do the radio show. But he would always come and pick us up after sound check and take us out to dinner. And we would just sit around and just he would tell us stories and give us advice and just one of the nicest, one of the nicest dudes in the business. But, um, yeah, I mean, I I remember the nights of, you know, putting tape on the VCR, you know, the hole in the tape, you know, and crossing out the label and sticking it in and recording. Recording.
0: Oh, God, dude. Um, Was it Ricky Rackman? Was it Ricky Rackman?
1: Uh, It was. I think it was Ricky.
0: Headbangers Ball. was. Yeah, that was me. I was doing the same thing
1: uh and then when uh and then later you know 10 years later it was 120 minutes with matt pinfield yeah and uh the first time we went to new york right after enemy came out right after the video was done they were like you're, you're doing 120 minutes we were like whoa man and we got to sit there and matt pinfield you know and, and he knew everything about us and we were just sitting there going like like, are you shitting me? Like we're sitting here. Like it was it was funny. But, uh, I got
0: I have to ask you this, and then I want to I want to end our conversation with the country fling of of what what the romance, not fling, but the romance you have with country music. <clears throat> um honest opinion, transparency. I just want to know Jeremy Popoff's opinion of the band Metallica.
1: Um I discovered Metallica. I had their the first EP kill them all. Um, when it was the, when that was the only thing out, and then um, when Riding the Lightning came out, it fucking blew my mind. And um, my my uh, we had an older step brother when we were kids, and he was in the Marine Corps, and he was he was out in uh, in Japan. And back in those days, used to be able to get like super badass stereo equipment for like nothing, super cheap. And he was shipping home what was becoming like the most monstrous stereo system on the planet. And he was shipping them back. And I was getting them and, you know, taking them out of the box and setting them up in my room. And I had this crazy, you could hear it from, you know, three blocks away. And I would, every morning when I was getting ready for school, I would just crank Ride the Lightning as loud as this fucking thing would go. I know people three streets over were hearing Ride the Lightning. Um and then um, you know, I got to see the Master of Puppets tour when they opened for ozzy I got to see Cliff, you know, on bass and um I fucking love I mean the old you know, not not as
0: huge of a thing. This this like, is where it's but, going.
1: Um I kind of started tuning out a little bit, you know, in, in the the last few records was but, you know.
0: I, I love. I, I would answer the question in the same way, and I would say that when Sandman came out, the the Black Album, whatever that was called, I think it was just called Metallica. Uh, when that came out, I, I often think of John Hine, the the guy on the wrap up show for Howard Stern, and he he was hired through Howard Stern through his original website called Jump the Shark, and he specialized in when TV shows or whatever Jump the Shark and whatever. And I just that album was when they lost me. Not I. I would have answered the same way because when. <clears throat> When I would listen to Injustice for All or Battery and on on Master of Puppets or or One or the Ride the Lightning album, dude, I just it, it just did something to me. And then I kind of lost it to where it didn't have that long that that gravitational pull on me as much as those early days of Metallica did. But I love James and I love he's a conservationist and he's a hunting fool and he's duck hunt right here in the Bay Area and they're from Oakland, I believe. But he's always right here in the Butte Sink and I just love the I I, I thought that they were very. Uh, uh, that they were strong in my in my upbringing as far as rock music went. But uh, I, th- I felt the same way that once that album came out in the black and inner Sam and the Unforgiven, great written songs and they were great. It just didn't do the same thing to me that that early phase of Metallica did or the original. They phase.
1: Every, every time I saw them live, they were
0: ripped it killer. Just awesome. rock it. They rock it. So the fact that the Nashville, you live in Nashville now, is it full time or do you still do you uh, just go back? So you, you, you're not your roots or you have a restaurant there. When you go back to, to mess with the restaurant, do you still have a place in SoCal in Orange County?
1: I am officially homeless in California.
0: Officially homeless. So uh,
1: I'll fit right in when I go back. You
0: know? <laughs> yeah. Well, or San Francisco, you can go there and just, <laughs> so you have the album that I, that I claim is my favorite country album of all time you have a, a a track on there that you have the same kind of same kind of frame deal in your house that you're going to put up someday but you write with Jamie Johnson you get a cut on the album and at the same time are you kind of doing maybe like what Aaron Lewis is doing that went from iconic rock stardom, you know, with lit and you, and you were selling out these, you know, sellouts and albums and number ones and festivals and all of this shit going on. And now all of a sudden you see Aaron with George Jones on a duet. Are you currently in that with the new music that's got more of the country vibe in it, Jeremy? And is that where you see it going for the next few years in your career?
1: Well, I definitely, um, you know, have been coming to Nashville for, 15 years now plus, and I would say the majority of the stuff that I write out here is country, but we decided, so two years ago, yeah, a couple of years ago, Lit put out a record called These Are The Days, and um, and it's very much a country-leaning record. I mean, it's still my brother singing and me on guitar, and it still sounds like Lit, but it's very, you know, we had been writing all these songs out here, and we just decided, hey, let's just, what we love these songs, you know? We wrote them with guys like John Singleton, who, you know, who signed Luke Combs and wrote a bunch of those, and um, and you know Corey Crowder produced it, and you know he's producing the new FGL, and um, you know Jeffrey Steele, and and I mean just you know we we it was written and recorded here in Nashville the way a lot of the songs you know that you hear on country radio were. The problem is is that I don't think the country world necessarily is all that interested in hearing a uh, country lit album, um, and I don't know that a lot of the lit fans really loved it. And I think it's one of our best records, but I think that the lit, the core lit audience, um, that's sort of grown up with us wants to hear more of the old school sound and lit stuff. So we, we made a decision, um, a few months ago that, um, we lit is going to make new lit music, but we're going to focus it more. We're going to try and keep that brand a little more specific to what we were doing. Um, and keep it more rock. And then my brother and I are about to drop our first song as pop-off brothers. And, um, it's a song called sons and daughters of summer. And, um, I think we're dropping it shit next week. And it's, that's going to be our outlet. Pop-off brothers is going to be our outlet for more of the country. Oh, nice. And And that way, if you're a lit fan and you go, Oh, pop-off brothers, that's Jeremy Adrian. I'm gonna check it out but there's not like, Hey, what the fuck? That's country. Like you, you know, where's my, my worst enemy, you know, where's my miserable. So uh, I'm excited about that. Cause I think it's going to give us just multiple outlets to just be creative and do what we want to do. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's the game plan. And then right now we just re-released RCA, just re-released that album on white vinyl to celebrate the 21st, anniversary we were supposed to be on tour right now we were supposed to be doing the place in the sun turns 21 um and the whole reason we did that instead of the 20 was 21 now you can gamble and drink and vegas and all that stuff so but in retrospect we maybe should have we maybe should have done that run on the 20th but um yeah that's pop
0: off brother pop off brothers and i just want people to understand of where i go i don't want to keep it a secret all the time but um I was introduced to you through Jamie Johnson because you are a songwriter of, I I don't even know how to say it, but like one of the, the, it's so clever the the song that you wrote with Jamie that made that album is Mowing Down the Roses. And are you you've already explained the place in your life was the divorce the young kid where you're at with you know your professional life and and jamie's kind of in that same deal so i I can picture you guys maybe sitting down and the you know the john deere and the roses is like you're not those aren't even staying kind of attitude kind of like jamie jamie's just got that different approach of like there's living color grandpa what's this and then the next single is smoking weed in a Baptist parking lot and 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 and, and living the high cost of living, right? Like that's crazy to me to even do that. And Brent Cobb brought that to my attention on a podcast of like, who does that? Who goes from living to in color to to putting out talking about Jesus and smoking weed in a Baptist parking lot? That's Jamie, right? And now here you are the a couple tracks later, this song comes on and I picture this guy in Alabama and now this guy in LA or Orange County, they're just mowing down the roses of it was the theme of it. Like, even that's got to go. <laughs> uh
1: The funny thing is, and I forget, we were both, we were both dating these girls. Um, I won't mention any names, but um they were friends at the time too. And they were out doing their thing. And Jamie and I uh, were at, I had another house in Nashville back in those days and it was right around the corner from his house. He was at my house and we were I had these, he was, I had these two couches in the living room and he was on one. I was on the other one. We're kind of just like laying around watching movies or flipping through. And we were watching, uh, black snake moan. Remember that movie with Samuel Jackson. So we were watching that movie and there was that scene where Samuel Jackson is literally just mowing the garden down that his wife had planted, you know? And we laughed so hard. We thought that was so fucking hilarious. And, um, we just grabbed guitars and started writing and we wrote that song. Wow, God. That was, that was what triggered that whole thing. And, um, and we laughed a lot while we were writing that song. It's a pretty funny song, you know, and, um, you know, smoking potpourri, you know, and smoking or potpourri and shit. I mean, we were just, we were laughing and, and, you know, I didn't know, um, you know, we, when we finished the song, he didn't say like, I'm cutting that on my record, you know, cause at the, you know, like I said before, that record was recorded In in kind of in stages, and it was recorded in Nashville and in LA. And it was kind of, it wasn't, you know, I don't know that at the time even Jamie knew he was making that lonesome song. It just, that album kind of morphed made made itself after you know a few months or a couple of years or whatever but what an
0: accomplishment man to go from your story is just awesome dude congratulations on it i want to do this again i'd like I'd, i want to get more into you know the inspiration part of it and your talents because you truly you and your brother are seriously like talented as shit when it comes to singing and composing and songwriting and stage presence and crowd participation and and just that whole vibe is just badass and then to hear your influences in the movies and the common bonds that i have i just i just kind of had a feeling and, and and you're you're humble as shit dude and I think that the, the story is awesome and i'm so glad that our audience and our you know we're we're hunters but we're also we're people man we we love to live off the land but we also are we get our influence from guys like you jeremy and, and that and listening to that that's what got us through college and high school and first dates and first breakups and and then you can transition that into a mowing down the roses and a pop-off brothers album coming and the first single dropping the next week in april of 2020 that's just cool man it's what a what a, a legacy or something to hang your hat on and Obviously, I'd love to have a conversation of, you know, maybe there are some things that, that it's not all roses. It's not all it's this whole life and in the nice place you live in and your great, your beautiful wife and your family. It was it wasn't easy. Like this is hard to get to this point. And you battled and you grinded. And I want to get into that next time. I'd love to do this again. I think it's incredible what you've built, bro. And I truly appreciate. I appreciate you coming on. You got any closing words?
1: Appreciate you, brother. Um yeah shit i I, uh maybe the next time you'll you can take take me out on my first uh my first duck hunt
0: no consider it done dude i'd love to have you
1: we'll get it on film and you can laugh at me and make fun of me yeah you know
0: uh, jamie wants to bring his dad and wally wants to bring his dad and we're going to put that together and, and have everybody get together and just uh have a big time at camp and get some guitars out and maybe pick a couple around the fire
1: that'd be badass man
0: that's Jeremy Popoff, the band lit. Um, one, well, I am going to ask you a favor, and you can tell me. No, I'll ask it here. I was going to uh, personally text you, but um, I would like to get a signed vinyl. Can I, can you make that happen for my studio? I,
1: I can make that happen.
0: Oh, dude, I can't wait. I can Thank even, you, Jeremy.
1: I can even get you one of
0: these. Can you really? Yeah. Oh, dude, I'll take it in a heartbeat. I'm going to give you my address and then we'll do a little bartering. We'll do a little of what Burning Man up here. You know, I'm only 100 miles from where the big Burning Man Festival is every year. And that's a bartering system. I learned I had a portable toilet company. That was my first business. And we we, that's that was my uh, my association with the Burning Man Festival and how they barter out there. But that's a crazy time if you've never done it. I don't know if you've Uh, ever done it, but. That's, that's, Jeremy, awesome. that's Jeremy Popoff, the band lit. Check them out. They are bad to the bone. Popoff yeah, Brothers you. coming up. Thank you, man. You guys are awesome. You guys are a true American icon, and the way you've built it is so freaking inspirational. Check out his story. Listen to their music. This has been another episode brought to you by our friends at Jack Daniels. Pure America. Enjoy it responsibly. This life ain't for everybody, and because I do have permission to use this song through Jamie Johnson and Lit instead of our, our our common song you hear on here. What you gonna do when the money's all gone with Leith Lofton and Drake White? We're going out with "Mowing Down the Roses," written by Jamie Johnson and Jeremy Popoff. Check it out. Thank you all so much.